We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Well, welcome to Monday Midrash Live. Um, well, it's live for you guys always, but it's not always live for people on this. So uh, I was um, having coffee this morning with a friend of mine uh, who's um, an Episcopalian minister here. He was the rector of St. Paul's downtown. His name is uh, Wallace Adams Riley. And uh, and we were talking about Midrash because, you well, I mean, he... I think from time to time he watches our class. Um, and, uh, and so he was talking about it. He was, he was, he was preaching, uh, or teaching at, uh, St. Mary's Catholic church. And he was talking, he was talking about Midrash there. And he said, you know, like, like he likes to teach, uh, biblical narratives and biblical stories and, and encourage people, you know, to like, let go of their preconceptions about like the, about the story, you know, so like read the story with fresh eyes and, you know, like fill in your own blanks in the story, right? Like picture things, how you want to picture them, how, you know, how they come into your mind, not how like you've been taught to. So that's, that's basically Midrash, right? Midrash is the ability to, he said that to me, he called it Midrash, but, um, uh, <laughs> just kidding, Walt. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the ability to look at a biblical text and to be able to kind of step back from it and, and to say, and to say, what if I had never encountered this text before? What if I had never, you know, how would I, how would I imagine this, this text looking, right? How would I imagine this scene looking if I were to, if I were to make a movie out of it in my own mind, or if I were to make a movie out of it, like, what would I, what would I need to add to the scene for the scene to work? Right. Um, so that's one way of thinking about it. I had a teacher who, who talked about, um, who, who, uh, taught us, um, it was Mikro Godolo. So it was a commentaries class, but sometimes she would like, you know, have us do that with a, with a text. It's like, okay, imagine you're directing the scene in a movie. Like, what would you need to do with this text in order to like actually make it have, make narrative sense? Right. Um, so like take, you know, we did it with Exodus. Right. So you know, take Pharaoh's decision to impose taskmasters on the Israelites, which is the initial thing that he does. Um, uh, you know, uh, like 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 who's Pharaoh talking to? He says it says he spoke to his people. So what does that mean? He's, he's standing on a balcony and the whole nation of Egypt is there and he's speaking, or is it his advisors, right? What does it mean he's speaking to his people there, right? Um, you know, he's, he's, he says, you know, look, the children of Israel are much too numerous. Are they right there? You know, where are the children of Israel when he's saying that, right? And what, what, what does much too numerous mean in, in Pharaoh's conception? Why is he worried about that? You know, that, that's right. So, so in other words, like if you, if you really needed the story to like make narrative sense on its own, right? Uh, what would you need to add? What would you, what would you need to change? So that's one way of thinking about Midrash. I thought that was really insightful, but then it struck me that sometimes Midrash does that, but like in a, in a, 
in a way, in, a, in an unexpected way. So I said, imagine that you were looking at a, an image, but like it was really zoomed in so that what the actual image was, was not what you were seeing, right? You were seeing, you know, this very minute detail that to you was the entire picture. And what would you, what would you, how would you describe that detail? What would that, what would you say about the picture just by looking at that detail? That then if you were to zoom out and see that detail in the context of the bigger picture, it might change how you saw the bigger picture, right? Um, what does that? Reader's Digest. It's usually something in nature, and this can tell it this isn't when it zooms out. It's never what you think. Right. You know, I think they had a cartoon about that in Sunday's paper. Really? Uh, uh, one of the cartoons was that. What did? What was the cartoon? You remember? Yeah. The cartoon. You know, this college kid, and um, he's really into computers and stuff like that. And his relationship with his mother and his father, and somebody lost his cell phone, and they were out there uh, painting. With these big paintbrushes on the ground, and you couldn't figure out what they were saying. And then I forgot exactly what they said, but uh, you could see it from far away that it actually said something. Yeah, right. But it's it's like that, right? You know, if you like look at a if you look at a picture of I don't know, like if I don't know, sometimes I, I was just having this the other day, and I can't remember what it was, but um, I was looking at like a detail on my. Oh, you know what? It's gonna be funny. I feel bad because it's gonna like now be you know uh, permanently out there on the internet. But I took a picture of Akiva's tushy, uh, <laughs> his naked tushy, and uh, and then I like um, for all the cuteness of my son, uh, and he has a lot of it. Uh, his tushy is probably the least cute part of him, which is surprising for me. But he's not a very cute. Tushy. Anyway, but I like zoomed in. <laughs> this figure of his touch, like to the point where it, like you know, it looked like I was looking at the Grand Canyon or something like that. Like it was impossible to tell when I was any longer looking at a human, a human buttocks. What's that? I pity children. Yeah, I know they got to live with this stuff forever. Anyway, but so, but I think that that's another way of thinking about midrash because you see that you know so often they're they're fixated on a very minute detail in the in, in the text, yeah, you know, and um, and they they sort of like you know uh, expound upon that detail in such a way that like radically transforms the way you would think about the passage altogether. So like that's another way of thinking about midrash um, is you know. Um, uh, getting getting a uh, getting a sense of what's going on by like narrowing in on the most minute of details. Sometimes um, it's just a little bit. We just you sort of wonder whether these guys are forgetting the context within which what they're dancing around. Yeah. Well, there is in you know because they're placing so much importance on the minutia. Yeah, or they're or they're not interested in the context. Like the context is not yeah. their point. Yeah. I've said a few times, like this is this is homiletical midrash, right? So this isn't necessarily written to be a comprehensive study uh, analysis of the Book of Genesis, right? These are collections of sermons that were given, you know. So when I'm giving a sermon in a given week, uh, my interest is not usually. I mean, sometimes it is, but it's not usually on, you know, how do I, uh, 
you know, offer a like full understanding of what's going on in this Parsha. Sometimes I just like, I get interested in a peculiarity of a particular verse and want to like, you know, riff on what that verse read creatively might teach us. Right. Um, so that's sometimes what they're doing here is not all, it's not, they're, they're not like being systematic about the, about this stuff. Um, so sometimes it's that they're, that they're, um, uh, uninterested in the context or forgetting the context, right? And sometimes it's just that, like, that's not their thing, you know? They're, they're, you, want, you want context, you know? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they would say about that. Read, 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 a, book of, read a book of context. <laughs> um, all right. Um, should, we, uh, should we read on? We're at number 14, if memory serves. Um, so we are going, this is another case, right? Where the Midrash explains the function of the word et in our verse, where it appears twice. Okay. Brishit bara Elohim et hashamayim the et haaretz. Now, the word et is a really interesting word in, in Hebrew. Right? There's not really an English equivalent of, of et. Um, so a couple things to say about that. Um, uh, uh, et is uh, is a connecting word, right? It connects uh, it connects uh, uh, subject to predicate, not subject to predicate, uh, 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 predicate to direct object. Yeah, right. So you're you know God creates heaven and earth. So it's like the it's the, the bridge between the the action and the and the object that's being acted upon or that's that's being made um, between the verb the and verb and the object and the object. Okay. Right. Right, so right in, right in, in, in that English, right, you, there's no translation of et. It's just, it's just there. Um, on the other hand, uh, it is probably the most common word in all of the Bible. Certainly all of the Torah, right? Um, I once did this. Have you ever done one of these, like, word clouds uh, or seen one of these word clouds that, like, takes... Uh, you know, a, a book or an article or a speech or something like that, and, and shows you sort of visually what the what what the most prominent words are in it, um, so that in the center is going center big print is going to be the most commonly used word, and then you know sort of like surrounding it are you know like the the bigger the more central and larger print are the more common things, the more peripheral smaller prints are less common. So I want. Just for fun. There was like a thing. People were doing this on Facebook with like, you know, whatever. And I was like, well, that sounds like fun. I'm going to put the whole Torah in there. And so I did that. I put the whole Torah in one of these like word cloud, you know, programs. And out it came. I might have the word cloud somewhere. Uh, but easily, et was the was the prominent one. And I said, one day I'm going to give a sermon about, about that. I uh, haven't done it yet. But um, but this idea that the most, what? Word with a word with no translation, a word that that is about connection. There's something I think there's some there's a sermon there, right? It's a word about connection, a word about like connecting um, action and object. Um, it has to be definite object. Right? Yeah, sure. You, if you say so, I don't know enough of the group. That's probably why I haven't given the sermon. Yet. I haven't done the research in the grammar. Well, it's quite, <laughs> okay, it doesn't have any meaning when they, when you use it. Is it does it is does it change the meaning of the sentence? It's not in the sentence. Well, I mean, what's the significance of it? 
It must be. Well, I think you're right. Definite object, right? So, if it's Bereshit bara Elohim Shemaim Va'aretz, you could therefore plausibly be talking about any heavens and any earth, right? But if you use Hashemaim Ve'aretz, you have to use Et, because it's referring to, like, particular heavens and earths. So, I think it would change Bereshit bara Elohim Hashemaim Right? Still there, you could be talking about any. But you could do Rishi Baralahim Hashemaim Vehaaretz. I wonder if grammatically that would work. I don't think so. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it might in some circumstances, but as a general rule, I don't think so. Yeah, I have to look into that. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but but at, at the very least, it. it, it uh, to Nancy's point, I mean, it indicates um, specificity um, in terms of the object in question. Specificity of what follows. Yeah, right. So, um, okay. I'm trying to think. Um, so, um, I'm trying to think of. Uh, let's see if I can find quickly an, uh, an example of. Well, it's not going to have Hebrew in it. Give me one second. Has a subject and predicate, but uh, or predicate and object, but no at. You ought to be able to find it easily if it's the most used word. Well, but I want to find one without an at, right? Um, oh. um, okay. So, okay. Well, here's, uh, I'm just looking at this week's Parsha. Veshachat um, et ben hapakar. Right, you should slaughter the um, uh, the the the, um, uh, the 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 calf, um, but it's it's ben habakar is smichut, but it's it should be it's it's really ha ben right. Um, so it's another like specific thing. Uh, I mean, it's not talking about like one specific cow, but like the cow that you have brought is the one that you are supposed to sacrifice, right? Um, but you couldn't say that sentence without the uh, I don't think so. Um, a funny little word. Yeah. Because you do need it where you need it. But uh, it, I can't think of more examples. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to uh, a child learning Hebrew. Says that sentence without the yet. What but but they would. But they wouldn't. The or is there a meaning for that phrase? Does it change the meaning if it's not in there? Well, it's like what Rabbi said. It would be any Shemayim or any art, but you know, it's not a particular one. Not a particular cat. It could be any cat. Right. Right. Veshachat. Veshachat. Yeah, you, it, I think that you could, I think that you, so long as you have the ha in front of the word, right? So long as you have like the, the what is that, definite article, right? So long as you have the definite article before the word, you have to have et. Um, so I'm not sure if it would change the meaning of it, but I just think that Hebraically wouldn't make grammatical sense anymore. 
maybe. But um, here, here, it's I think partially it's asking it as why do you have Brishi Baralahim et Hashemaim et Haaretz? Why couldn't it just be Brishi Baralahim et Hashemaim Haaretz? Right, you don't need both ets. In that case, right? You could just say et Hashemaim Haaretz. Does that sound weird just because we're used to wearing it with the both ends? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, because I, I, I'm just uh, sorry. I, then I, I got to think about it. But, I, but I'm pretty sure uh, that it, now you could say Brishit Bara Elohim Shemayim Ba'aretz, but I'm not sure you could say Brishit Bara Elohim Hashemayim Ve'Ha'aretz, and it still make grammatical sense in Hebrew. Uh, not that it would change the meaning necessarily, but that it would just like, you know, um, it would no longer like, like syntactically work. Right. Um, but again, I'm not a, I'm not a grammar expert, so that's a tricky one for me to answer. Um, and it definitely is a grammatical syntax thing. Yeah. That's its purpose. It's to clarify things in a grammatical way. The other thing that I like about the word et, uh, by the way, et sometimes uh, can be interchanged with im, uh, ein mem im, uh, which means with. Um, so, uh, uh, so some I'm trying to think of an example of that off the top of my head. Uh, one may come to me, um, but sometimes it's better better to translate. Sometimes it's it's. Uh, the, the the functional way of translating it is uh, is not like untranslated but like with um, um, often like so here's a way of doing that so um, um, no that's not an example I have to think about that um, I can think of an example off the top of my head just to take my word for it um, or not um, yeah, um, and the other thing I think is cool about the word "et" is that it uh, this sort of like you know untranslatable, connective common word is comprised of two letters being the first and last letters of the alphabet. Now, if you want to sort of like go you know um, a level deeper than that is uh, what's the Hebrew word for truth? Emet. Right, which is the first, last, and exact middle of the alphabet, uh, Aleph, Mem, Tav. Right. Um, so you have, you know, the um, so some people there. There are various ways of you know drashing that, giving midrash about that. You know, like the truth is somewhere in between extremes. Right. Um, okay. Who read last week? Me. Franklin, you want to read? Yeah. All right. So we're, we're at number 14, the Midrash explains. The Midrash explains the function of the word et in that verse, where it appears twice. Yashmiel, Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Yishmael posed a question, posed a question uh, to Rabbi Akiva. Mm-hmm. Okay, you read the question. Yeah, that's fine. You can just skip to the English. Inasmuch as you have attended Nachum Ish Gamzo. For 22 years, the latter having established that inscription. So let me just pause there. Okay, uh, attended here uh, means like you uh, you you served him. You know, um, you were like his his servant. 
Nachum um, Gamzo uh, is, uh, is uh, as you might infer from this passage, is uh, um, a, uh, 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 an ancient rabbi of the generation uh, before Rabbi Akiva. Um, and uh, he's called Nachumish Gamzu because his, uh, he's famous for saying, Gamzu Latova, uh, this also is for good. Um, so in other words, like when, you know, when, whenever something good would happen, he would say, Gamzu Latova, this is something good. Whenever something bad would happen, he would say, Gamzu Latova, this is also for good. Um, so that's where he gets that name. He's like the Ish Gamzu is like the man who says Gamzu, right? Um, uh, and what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone asked me uh, about uh, last names, uh, and uh, uh, you know, she was asking whether she uh, was obligated by Jewish law to take her husband's last name. Uh, and, you know, I actually didn't, like, think about this when I answered her question, but, like, I probably shouldn't have, like, got in the middle of a, of, <laughs> of a, uh, of a debate yeah. between partners on that subject. But uh, what I said is that, you know, last names aren't, like, uh, aren't particularly, like, a Jewish invention, you know. Um, so my guess is that Jewish law doesn't really have a lot to say on the subject um, because, um, you know, last names weren't even really in use in the world in general until like the 10th or 11th century. Turns out there is actually now some, uh, especially in the Orthodox world, law around taking um, a man's last name primarily for issues related to, uh, to a get. So like, you know, sort of like part of the issue with gets is that you want to be able to like clearly identify the parties of the gets. There's no confusion about it. Uh, and so some communities say that that's a reason that a woman should be required to take a man's name, uh, in, um, uh, in marriage so that in the event that there's a get, there's no confusing, uh, uh who she is. Um, but, uh, but in any event, like there's, you know, there's what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there's a bigger than a two-letter word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's, but there's no, you know, there's like in, you know, in the Bible, there's no last names, and you know, so. But this is like as close as you would get in rabbinic literature to a last name. It's like some kind of nickname that people would like append to somebody's name. Well, it's like, interesting. We were in the cemetery one time, and Rabbi Creditor was there, and he was asking about some stones near where my family was, and there's no Hebrew on, and he. Right, the parent, yeah. And, and it's true. So. But those are all first names. Okay. Yeah, they are. But if you keep seeing the same one, then you can figure they're related somehow. But I've always wondered about that because, well, I'm used to the English, you know, having a last name. There aren't but so many.
having established that in Scripture, the words ah and red. Rock. Ah and rock, both of which mean only, denote limitation, while the words s, x, and gam are also denote inclusion. I ask you, what is the word at when it's written here in our verse including? Okay, well, it's going to continue. Okay, so, um, uh, so, achin v'rakin mi'utin, okay, so when we have the word uh, ach and rak in Hebrew, it limits what we're saying, right? So, um, so, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, um, I can't think of a good example of ach or rock, but, uh, um, you know, uh, if I were to say, like, you know, um, uh, 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 rock it rock, rock habanim, uh, trying to do without an act, but, uh, anyway, whatever, it, it's, it's limiting, right? So in other words, it's, it's, it's excluding things from whatever we're talking about, whereas etin vegamin ribuyin, uh, ets, and gums uh, are inclusive. They expand what we're talking about, right? Um, so, if that's the case, um, uh, where the first verse of Genesis says et, uh, uh, what does it mean to include? What does it expand, right? Uh, what is it... Uh, um, what, uh, yeah, what does it what does it include? Uh, um, or you could either limit or include, and this is including. So what is it including? All right, that, that question made more sense when we read a little bit more. Okay, on the next page, all right? Yeah. Okay. Had it been stated in the beginning, God created heavens and earth, and not prefaced heavens and earth with an et. Okay, we might have thought that heaven and earth are divine beings. Rabbi Ishmael, however, was not satisfied with this and responded to him by citing the verse, for the Torah is not an empty thing for you, Deuteronomy 32-47, which suggests that if it appears empty, it is from you, because of you. Why? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, okay, so, uh, uh, we'll keep going a little bit. He's, he's, he's going, yeah. But you do not know how to expand it correctly because you failed to toil in it sufficiently. This is what we call uh, throwing shade. <laughs> this too is the meaning of the verse's continuation. For it is your life. Okay? When it is your life, when it is your life, when you toil in it sufficiently, thereby ensuring that nothing in it yeah. Well. Okay. So uh, here. So here's here's the setup, right? So um, uh, ach and rock mean uh, are are limiting words. Uh, et and gam are inclusive words, expanding words. So uh, Rabbi Akiva says, okay, why is it that uh, we have et shemayim et aretz in that first verse? It's because of it. It's just said shemayim va'aretz. 
uh, without an et, then you might have thought that uh, that that uh, uh, heaven and earth were uh, were their own divine beings or their own you know uh, uh, divine entities. Okay, that's Rabbi Akiva's midrash. And Rabbi Ishmael is apparently unhappy with that midrash, right? Uh, you you did not, he says, uh, uh, interpret that correctly. And not only you know did he gently say, uh, you know, uh, you know, Rabbi Akiva, I have another opinion, right? He says, Rabbi Akiva, you're an idiot. Uh, you you did not you did not work hard enough on that uh, on that midrash. Uh, let me show you how it's done. Okay, so now he's going to show us uh, how he's how it's done, Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Yishmael presents his own, which he says, rather the term "et" used with reference to the heavens is meant to include the sun, moon, constellations, other heavens. Okay, and the term "et" used with reference to the earth is meant to include the trees, vegetation, and the garden of Eden. Presented. All right. So okay. All right. Totality. Yeah. Right. So, so Rabbi Yishmael's midrash um, uh, plays on this idea of um, of uh, et having to uh, include things. Right. So when God says et hashamayim. Uh, uh, it's referring to all the things that are in the heavens, right? So it's not just it's not just sky, right? It's everything that's in the sky, right? And when it says uh, earth, it's not just earth; it's everything that's on the earth, right? Um, so let's just pause it for a second, okay? That, that's Rabbi Yishmael's opinion, which seems to coincide with this idea that et is in, is is a is an inclusive term. Um, how does Rabbi Akiva's midrash work? Like if we were to be generous to Rabbi Akiva and not just to kind of see him as a foil to Rabbi Yishmael, uh, is there a way to understand his midrash so that, like, from a technical perspective, like, we understand, right? The setup was this whole, like, you know, et is inclusive, right? And if it didn't have the et, it would not, uh, it would be a limiting statement. Well... Each of the words that we're talking about, heavens and earth, denote uh, complex, uh, a complex, a complex objects, not simple objects. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't see how you can refer to earth or to the heavens uh, and not be inclusive just by using those two words. Mm-hmm. Because if, to me, if you, if you say heavens. You mean everything in the heavens. And the same thing you say earth. You say earth, it's whatever the earth is composed of. If I say uh, Rabbi Noff, it's, it's who Rabbi Noff is as a person. Mm-hmm. It's a complex thing. So you're saying that, that, won't, that whether, whether or not you use an et, you would still have the same thinking about... Well, I, I guess I'm turning it around. I don't see how you can refer to heavens... Uh, something that's not included. Implicitly including what the heavens are composed of. Hmm. It's it's as if you're, for this to work, the word heavens would have to be describing something other than the heavens, including the garden, you know, uh, know, all the sun, the, the, the planets, whatever. 
it's almost as if he's trying to describe something that, that is other than well, that's what right. happens. But that's he's giving right. it a different meaning. Yeah. Just to linger on that for a second, I mean, what you're, what you're, uh, what you're saying in a way is that you know there's there's nothing there's nothing that's a single solid substance, right? Um, so you know, as the Whitman said, "I am large; I contain multitudes," right? And that's literally true of every single uh, thing in the universe, right? Um, that uh, that there's a you know it's like so it's, it's almost impossible to distill anything down to like its smallest component part. Um, that's what quantum physics kind of tries to do, but there's it's like a, a lot of theory. Um, you know, the, the 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 smallest sort of like quantifiable substance that we can find is is uh, it, you know the particles of an atom, but even that has component parts, right? Right. So um, we find more every day. Yeah, uh, and then you know then you bring in like sort of like you know dark energy into the equation it's like a whole other thing so um so it's a really i think interesting point that uh, you know say okay you know et makes something more inclusive but but there's no way for those things to not be inclusive of uh, of the things that they're composed of what were you going to say nancy i was just going to say going back up there to to rabbi akiva's initial response to him he said well if i hadn't said it that way then we might have thought of heaven and earth as divine beings so that something else entirely, not that it's inclusive or, or not inclusive. Either. Yeah, yeah, so it's, sorry. No, I'm yeah. not, you know, I, I can't kind of um, have that happen, but. Let me see if I can bring in this uh, whiteboard for a second. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't use uh, it. So it's stuck back right. there. Um, the totality. Right. The I didn't he's calling so, him something else. Totally. Let's do it this way. Um, yeah, that's fine. Um, can you have a pen? Can I have a pen? I don't know if you'll be able to see this. Um, have you ever seen this? What does this say? Can you read it? Oh, sorry. Can you read it? <laughs> the panda eats, shoots. Here, I gotta show it. The oh, panda yeah. eats, oh, yeah. shoots, and leaves. Right. I have a book that says that. Right. So, what is that statement saying? The three things that the panda eats. Right. But what if I were to say the panda eats, shoots, and leaves? Whatever. Well, put commas in there. Right. Um, the, the panda eats. Shoots and leaves, right? So and now you're referring to that picture you were talking about, <laughs> right? So, so, so I think that that's what Rabbi Akiva is saying here. Rabbi Akiva is saying here that if I didn't have the etz there, if I had Brishi bara Elohim Hashemayim Aretz, you might think that it is, um, uh, 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 you know, in the beginning, you know, created. God, heavens, and earth, with commas between them, right? In the beginning, created God, heavens, and earth, with those three things being equal things, right? So we have the et uh, um, uh, to... Uh, now, I don't know how that plays with the whole, like, et is expansive. I guess you could say that, uh, that the et sort of, like, like um, expands upon 
the the notion of creating or that God creating, right? Um, but um, but anyway, I think that that's what he's getting at. That if you didn't have the et, you would have a statement that you could plausibly read as you know, uh, Elohim, Shemaim, Aretz, three things that were created at the beginning. All three things being sort of like on equal footing. Or heavens and earth could—I mean—you could substitute a name for them, you know, Zeus and right. something like that. So, not with the commas, but just that, that it's a different concept. And yeah, heavens and earth. Right. Well, hmm. Let's see the heavens include the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a good point. Um, but you know, it, uh, um, we had to make money off of this, <laughs> so we didn't need to save the earth at all. We don't need to save the earth at all. Yeah, all we need to do is save the heavens. Um, <laughs> uh, that would actually that would appeal to the evangelicals. I think. Yeah, save, save don't save the planet. Save save the heavens. <laughs> Um, which also includes the planet. Um, all right. So, okay, so now, so that's, uh, all right, so, um, uh, um, let's, let me see if, uh, if the, uh, commentary here, like, addresses that, that Rabbi Akiva's, uh, Midrash doesn't seem to deal with, um, uh, with the initial statement of, well, I guess here's here's what I, I don't think it has to. I guess is is uh, also the point because the setup is Rabbi Yishmael, right? Rabbi Yishmael says your teacher Nachumish Gamzu used to say that Et was inclusive and Ach was uh, uh, limiting, right? So okay, given that, how would you trans- How would you interpret the Et in um, in uh, in Brishi Baralim Medeshvayim Vedar? So how would you interpret that verse? <laughs> and Akiva doesn't take the bait of the premise, right? Or doesn't buy the premise. Like, I don't think that those, you know, I don't need to uh, accept that Nakamishigamzu's interpretation of et has to apply specifically here. Generally speaking, he may, be, he may have been right, but that's not how I interpret this verse, right? And Yishmael, like, it was a setup all along, right? Yishmael wanted him to give that answer so that Yishmael could then come and say, you're an idiot, right? Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, that happens, by the way. Um, there's, um... Have we seen that? Yeah, we. Oh, we've seen it in Talmud. Right. Not agreeing right. with one another, and, 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 and sometimes they, it just comes up they don't agree. Right, that have that right that 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 does happen all the time in Talmud. Talmud, you know, the, the you know one one sage will kind of like set up an argument, right? Um, that uh, that that he knows that the opponent to the argument is going to. It's a good lawyer, right? Knows what answer the the question. You know what the witness is going to say before you ask the question. Otherwise, you shouldn't ask the question, right? Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so it's the same thing, right? Rabbi Yishmael knows what Rabbi Yishmael is going to say. He wants him to answer that answer, so then he can go back and say, "No, you're wrong." It's a trap. Right? Yeah, it's a trap. Um, that uh, one of my uh, um, so it's actually related to Rabbi Akiva. Uh, Rabbi Akiva had um, uh, a, a few uh, prominent disciples. Uh, one of whom uh, is a rabbi named Elisha Benabuya, who we've talked about a little bit in this uh, in this class. Um, we talked about the book As a Driven Leaf, mm-hmm. right? And Elisha Benabuya is the uh, main character in As a Driven Leaf. Sorry, this is your pen. Um, was it your pen? 
Okay. Um, and uh, uh, so the the book sort of like takes its premise from from passage in the Talmud that deals with the the apostasy of Elisha ben Abuya. There's a scene. So one of the other uh, famous students of Rabbi Akiva is a, is, a, is a rabbi named Rabbi Meir, uh, and uh, rabbi, so rabbi Meir and Rabbi uh, and Elisha ben Abuya are like our, our colleagues. They also have sort of like a, a teacher student dynamic. Um, and uh, and so after Elisha ben Abuya's apostasy, um, Rabbi Meir goes and visits him. And, uh, and there's this whole scene where Elisha ben Abuya is like riding a horse and it's Shabbat, but, but Rabbi Meir is like, like following next to him, uh, even, you know, right. sort of running next to him. You know, it's this steady gallop. Uh, and um, uh, so it's this, this, it's this beautiful scene of, of, um, of like you know, student loyalty to teacher, even in the face of this teacher being, uh, having been expelled from the rabbinic order. Um, and, you know, Rebbe Mayer still considers him a teacher, still going to learn Torah from him. And Rebbe, uh, and Alicia Benabuya, um, like, poses to him these series of questions. He says, you know, uh, why does, um, I don't remember the exact verses, but it's like some verse from Job talking about, like, gold and glass. And, uh, and Rebbe Mayer uh, gives an answer about, um, about how um, Torah is um, is as easy to acquire as glass, but uh, uh, or, or uh, Torah is is uh, is um, is as hard to acquire as gold, but as easy to break as glass, or easy to lose as glass. And Alicia says uh, that's not what your teacher Rabbi Akiva would have said. Right? What your teacher Rabbi Akiva would have said. Uh, that um, that um, uh, that um, um, uh, that uh, um, and I can't remember exactly, but something like like it, uh, uh, but uh, uh, something like 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 sages, uh, um, you know, are um, are as uh, um, are as precious as gold. Uh, uh, but, um, uh, but like can be repaired like glass or something like that. I don't remember exactly. And, and, uh, and, uh, I have to go back and look and see what he actually says. But then mayor says to him, well, like, it's like all a setup, right? The whole scene is a setup. Elite are, the initial instinct is to see this as like a normal rabbinic discussion like this, where the rabbi sets it up so that he can refute what the student is going to say and prove a different point. The whole scene is a setup, though, for Rabbi Mayer to then be able to say to Elisha, well, you can also do tshuva, right? Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in all of, uh, in, in all of Talmud, is this, this like, you know, teacher-student dynamic with, with ultimately, you know, Rabbi Mayer, like, pleading with Elisha to, like, do tshuva and, like, rejoin the rabbinic ranks and, you know, rescind his apostasy. Um, it's an amazing story. Uh, um, um, Chagiga, Tractate Chagiga in the Talmud, which, if you're, you're doing Megillah right now with uh, Rabbi Creditor, does he do, do you do a full tractate, or does he pick, like, chapters? The whole tractate? Megillah. <laughs> yeah, lots of Megillah. So ask him, ask him if he'd be willing to do twenty, uh, at least twenty ten, twenty two thousand. Oh, when did we start, start it? Start that one? I don't know. I 
it's well, been years. Yeah. So see if he'd be willing to do Chagiga with you next, because Chagiga is a short track date. It's got relevant material because it uh, deals with uh, with with, with uh, uh, festivals. H a g i g a h, something like that. I G A H Hagiga. The second, the second chapter of Hagiga is where this, where the stuff with Alicia Benabuya comes in. It's, it's a couple pages there that are like really, really rich. Um, yeah, it's such a good book. Uh, my my mother-in-law said, "Yeah, it's, it's something about fragile as glass, but I can't. It's I can't remember exactly what the midrash is. But anyway, but it's this. But it, my point, my digression there is also this is like a stylistic thing that's like very common in rabbinic literature. That like you know, it's a it's a setup on on Yishmael's part just to kind of like sh- you know, shoot down what Rabbi Akiva says. Um, all right, so so then we have Yishmael's interpretation that heavens includes the the sun, moon, and constellations, uh, and the earth includes trees, vegetation, and the Garden of Eden. Now that's an interesting point in and of itself, because uh, as we know, the Garden of Eden is not created until cha- at least explicitly until chapter two of uh, of, of Genesis. Um, Right, Garden of Eden is not mentioned at all in chapter one, um, uh, but uh, Garden of Eden, let's see, comes in here. We go, uh, uh, chapter two, verse eight. Right. Um, God planted a garden Eden to the east. Now he might be referring to instead of uh, no, never mind. It's probably not. I was gonna say he might be referring to like heaven there. Uh, but probably not. Um, all right, let's let's keep going a little bit. Nancy, so, or you want to keep going, Franklin? Good. Pursuant, yeah. Pursuant to mentioning that diligent study of Torah will enable one to expand it, expound it, expound, expound it correctly. The midrash cites examples where such a phenomenon were apparent. Okay, Rabbi uh, Tachuma said in the name of Rev. Scripture state, Bezel, Batzel. Mm-hmm. This, this is this past week's Parsha. Uh, or, yeah. Son of Ura. Uri. Uri. Son of Ura mm-hmm. of, of the tribe of Judah did everything that Hashem, Hashem commanded. Most, what Moses commanded him is not stated. Rather, what is stated, everything that Hashem commanded Moses. Yeah, so in uh, anybody else see the difference between those two things? So the actual the actual the first verse that it's citing is uh, is Exodus chapter thirty eight verse twenty two. Bitzalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, did everything that Hashem commanded Moses. What Moses commanded him is not stated. 
Rather, what is stated is everything that Hashem commanded Moses. So what's the difference between those two? Moses was the intermediary. The words were from God. Okay. Yeah. So what's the point that that, uh, Rabbi Talmud Chuma is trying to make here? Well, whatever Moses would have commanded him would be the same thing as what Hashem commanded Moses to tell these people to do. Say that again? Maybe not according to this one. Maybe. But what I'm suggesting is that when Moses was, when Moses, uh, wait a minute. So we have everything, we have what Hashem commanded Moses to do. What we don't have is what Moses commanded Bezalel to do. Correct. But what Moses commanded Bezalel to do would be the same as what Moses, had, uh, what God had commanded Moses to tell Bezalel what to do, supposedly. So therefore it would have been superfluous. Right, that's one way of looking at it, that it would have been superfluous. I think another, I think the point that they're trying to make here is that um, is that uh, 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 Bezalel did everything that God commanded Moses. It doesn't say that Moses commanded him. Uh, it's implied. Uh, but I think what it's saying is that uh, that Bitsala was able to properly understand everything that Moses told him um, uh, uh, as God intended it uh, through uh, diligent study, right? So he, he, he understood it. He, uh, he understood it as if God had commanded him directly, oh, even though Moses was the one who told him. Right? So, so in other words, what it's saying is, okay, what we have here in the Torah are the words of Moses, right? What we need to know is, what did God intend by those words? What did what God, you know, what, what was, what's the real meaning of them? Right? So, it's all in Sadaburi did everything that God commanded Moses, right? Um, so that uh, uh, with, with enough, with the dedication and diligence of Bitzalel, we too could understand Moses' words as if they had come directly to us from God. Okay. I don't see how you get that from that, but okay. <laughs> right. Uh, I could be wrong about that. That's all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, I hear it. I mean, it, it does make sense. You got a lot of ets in there. You got a lot of ets in there, <laughs> which are inclusive. Um, uh, so, uh, here, oh, here, keep going on the next page. So it's a little different than I was saying. Um, this implies... Is it right, one? Yes. This implies that even things that Basil did not hear from his teacher Moses, he conceived on his own in accordance with that, with that which had been said by God to, to Moses at Sinai. In other words, he's figured out what God said, even though Moses didn't say it to him. Right. Well, that's what you said. Yeah, more or less. I mean, you're right. So, so you he know. Conceived of his own, of course. So he's understanding is more than Moses said. Right. But you said by action, by by actions of his having studied. By by like right by by diligent study is what I said because the point that they're trying to make is that uh, is is you know why could Rabbi Ishmael say this to Rabbi Akiva? You know, like what you know what. 
Like, is there a basis for this shade he was throwing at Rabbi Akiva that you know that that if you if you were more diligent you would properly understand what had uh, what what those ets were for in Brigitte Bradley much Um There's a comment. Uh, sorry. So we're ascribing to the Zalel mind reading. <laughs> Uh, so we're describing him to be a, 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 a diligent student. So in other words, Rabbi explained to you, Harry, and Harry explained it to me. No, Harry didn't explain it to you. <laughs> right. I went and studied what, what Rabbi said, and I came up with my own understanding of what Rabbi said. Which was but Rabbi never said anything to you. Well, it was all written down. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It didn't go on. It would end up like that telephone. Game, yeah. So the commentary, the notes bring uh, uh, an, an interesting um, uh, uh, piece of information here. Um, so th- they claim, the notes claim, that the Midrash is referring specifically to a debate that arose between Moses and Bitzalel as to whether the ark should be constructed first or the tabernacle should be constructed first. Bitzalel succeeded by applying his own mind in determining the correct sequence of construction as per God's command. Uh, 160. I just, well, I skipped to the second paragraph. Yeah. Uh, which is amazing, considering that Moses was the one who actually got the commandment and not Betzalel. But Betzalel and Moses had an argument, and Betzalel won. Um, the exact nature of the debate is subject to dispute. See Brachot 55a and, and Exodus Rabbah uh, 50 number 2. As to why Moses relayed God's command differently from the way he had been told, see the climate edition of Exodus Rabbah in sight, uh, whatever, okay. Uh, in any event, we see that by toiling in Torah, Betzalel was able to arrive on his own at what had been told by, to Moses by God. Okay. All right, why don't we... There wasn't anything from, from which he was able... To, he, what was available to Bezalel? To gain this information, to glean this information from... From what, from what was there <laughs> for him, grammatically, to well, gain that information? Uh... uh from uh, from inference from Moses's relaying of the commandment, um, he didn't agree with what Moses said. Well, it's not that he didn't agree with what Moses said; he disagreed with Moses's interpretation of what Moses said. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so you know, Moses said, uh, I, and I actually think uh, if I'm not mistaken if I were to look, well we could probably just look ourselves, Nexus chapter uh, like 30 where the commandment to the tabernacle is first given, uh, no it's before that, sorry, uh, 25 yeah okay, so so 25 um, uh, says, uh, you know so imagine this is, you know, Moses Moses is relaying this to Betzalel Speak to the children of Israel and let them make for me, uh, uh, let them take for me a, a portion from every man whose heart motivates him. You shall take my portion. And this is the portion you shall take from them gold, silver, and copper, turquoise, purple, scarlet wool, linen, and goat hair, red dyed ram skins, uh, tachash skins, acacia wood, 
oil for illumination, spices for anointment, oil and the aromatic incense, shawm stones and stones for settings for the ephod and breastplate. They shall make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them like everything that I show you, the form of the tabernacle and the form of all its vessels, and so shall you do. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Okay, so then, okay. That's so, what God told Moses. Yeah, so presumably Moses, that's what Moses relayed to Betzalel. Uh But it is, uh, there's, there's a principle, you know, in Mukdam Mechav Torah, right, that there's, that there's no strict chronology in the Torah. So just because God mentions the tabernacle first doesn't mean that that's what God wanted constructed first. And if the purpose of the tabernacle was, uh, was, uh, was... <laughs> The question that we had. We in other words, like, uh, how did the people like schlep all this stuff with Egypt? <laughs> I mean, they didn't have any trucks. <laughs> uh, how do you know they didn't? Well, they had, they had carts. They schlep all this stuff all those days from Egypt. How, 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 no, it, that, no, this didn't happen. Well, we don't now. We don't know where it happened. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a good answer to that question at two o'clock today. I'm. Per- uh, participating in a webinar with uh, the, the the man who wrote the Bible, uh, Richard Elliot Friedman, uh, <laughs> and he's going to be teaching about the Exodus. And I'm going to ask him your question. I'm going to say, "How did the Israelites?" No, because I I uh, uh, I, uh, I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I mean, like, you know, my, my cynical. How long do you think your time frame was it from the time? They left Egypt. They don't want it back until right now they begin to build the tabernacle. Well, if you if 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 you understand the Torah's chronology, they start to build the tabernacle um, uh, around uh, around the around the first Yom Kippur after the Exodus, right? So the the um, uh, the golden calf episode happens on Tisha B'Av. So okay, sorry, let's back it up. They leave Egypt on Passover. Okay. They uh, get the Ten Commandments on Shavuot. Right. Okay, seven weeks later. Uh, Moses goes up the mountain, comes back down the mountain 40 days later on Tisha B'Av. Smashes the tablets, goes back up the mountain. Comes back down 40 days later uh, with a, a new set of uh, tablets. That's Yom Kippur. Okay. Six months. They start constructing it, I guess, about six months after the so Exodus. They got all this gear that they carried from Egypt in one form or another. They finish it six months later, by the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Minus all the stuff they put in the golden calf. Yeah. Well, yeah, right, exactly. Yes. Right, they yeah. take it all the Right. Tools. That's right. They still, they, they already had already used a lot of their gold uh, and then drank it. And, and, and I, I think the rabbi <laughs> said they pulled it all over here. Yeah. But yeah. for the rule that what the order is in the Bible is not necessarily the order of that it's in. Uh, that's true. It's it's uh, so actually. What's interesting the uh, the the, um, uh, the 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 commandment about the tabernacle comes before the scene of the golden calf. But the rabbinic tradition actually says that uh, the that the commandment was given to the children of Israel, maybe even to Moses after. The golden calf. So the the or the chronology is is uh, is flipped I'll be in the Torah. Yeah, I mean the, my, the cynical side of me says that uh, that 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 if the Exodus happened historically, it didn't happen the way the Torah described. Uh, 
They, they may have made a tabernacle in the wilderness, but it probably didn't look like that. Uh, and that a lot of this is sort of like, you know, um, retrospective, right? It's like, you know, later generation says, you know, the later generation is like building a temple or has a temple. So the, the thing that they had in the wilderness must, must have been similar to this, right? So what would they need for that, right? Um, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Professor Friedman is less cynical than I am.